I can go up to Alaska. <laughs> hey, dog, that's what you got to get, man. I'm qualified to go up to Alaska. <laughs> Free School of 2022. So good to be back. So good to see people I haven't seen for a little while, like Eddie, who's in Mexico, and Idaho, and Illinois, <laughs> and uh, Nori, who was in Korea, uh, and who else? I mean, I guess that's about it. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> and I, he was hanging out. <laughs> but um, I guess people will be coming in slowly today. Uh, some people are still out of town. Uh, so uh, before we get into the real substance of what we're going to talk about today, I just want to uh, alert everyone to uh, events that are coming up in the next few months. And if there are any that I forget, please, Somebody just pull my coat. Uh, starting uh, this Monday at six o'clock, Divya is uh, conducting a, a reading group at the West Philadelphia Free Library on 40th Street, 40th and Walnut, reading 
uh, Du Bois's uh, novel entitled The Ordeal of Mansart. Uh, and uh, at the end of his life, uh, Du Bois wrote three novels. Uh, and it follows the life and career uh, from reconstruction up to the civil rights movement of a man named Mansart, Manuel Mansart. And uh, so that will begin this Monday at six o'clock. I've asked Michelle to email uh, what the Zoom link is so everybody can be a part of it. I think you will enjoy it very much. On the 16th of this month, which is next Sunday, I'll be speaking at the um, Pittsburgh Anti-Imperialist League on the topic of um, the Chinese so China, China's socialist, Chinese socialism's challenge to U.S. imperialism. And uh, I think if you go to Facebook, I think I've shared it, Michelle has shared it. Uh, I think the major organizers of it are in Pittsburgh, but it'll be a, a live stream. Yeah, so I'll be in Philadelphia. And you all can be in Philadelphia. <laughs> I wanted to take a trip. Yeah, or we can all go to Pittsburgh. Oh, hello, everybody. How are you? Uh, we can all go to Pittsburgh, or we can all go to Pittsburgh virtually, <laughs> <laughs> which is just as good, as I guess, these days. So, um, Michelle, what time is that? I think it's from. Oh, we'll, we'll send it out. We'll send it out. But um, people listening on the. Um, on the, the live stream. If you could, if someone could just look up uh, uh, when it's it at, is. It's at 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. on Sunday, January 16th. Yes, and we'll, um, and, and if you go to the Facebook page of the Pittsburgh Anti-Imperialist League, all the information is there. And uh, it should be at least an interesting uh, discussion. What is anti-imperialism? And you know, I think what we all know that this socialist rise of China is a challenge to U.S. imperialism. And so, and the other thing is, everybody can call in with questions and. Uh, discussion and all of that, and I really uh, encourage it. On Tuesday, January 18th, I'll be presenting. <laughs> I'm building myself. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need to build myself up. No. <laughs> build myself up so I can be torn down by guys like Eddie. <laughs> no, but uh, I'll be speaking. Uh, for the Martin Luther King lecture uh, for the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission. And that'll be on Tuesday, uh, January 18th at two o'clock. Maybe one o'clock. 
Uh, let me uh, let me look it up. I'll I'll oh, wait a minute. Um, no, no Zoom. Everything is Zoom. Everything is a live stream. Um, oh yes, here it is. Uh, it'll be from one to two thirty, and um, I. It's if you go to the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission uh, Facebook page. All the information is there. And the title of the presentation is, What Would Martin Luther King Say to a Nation Trapped in the Wilderness of Chaos and Confusion? And I think Martin Luther King would have a lot to say. Then uh, moving forward in February, uh, now I'm not quite certain of the date, uh, but it's possibly uh, the it's a celebration of the birthday of W.E.B. Du Bois. And this is the Episcopal Covenant. I think it's a crucifixion. Crucifixion. Church of the Crucifixion, which is in South Philadelphia. Uh, and it is the oldest black Episcopal church in Philadelphia, maybe one of the oldest in the whole nation. It is at 8th and Bainbridge. And it is mentioned and talked about by Du Bois in the Philadelphia Negro. Uh, and they want to do a celebration of Du Bois's birthday. The largest part of the congregation is Laotian. Oh, wow. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> and they want to partner with the preschool. So I, um, uh, in, in our discussion, I said, well, wow, in the preschool, we got a group called Viet, Vietnam, Viet Lao Man, you know, like, <laughs> something like come that. On, come on. <laughs> but different Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. And I put them in touch with uh, Brandon. I ain't heard back from him. So I don't, I, Brandon got terrible communications. But anyway, we discussed this big kind of cultural event of Southeast Asian, South Asian, African-American, East Asian communities coming together in this very beautiful church. So that is, uh, the 23rd I think is on a Wednesday. So we're either looking at a, a Sunday or Saturday before that or after that, but it is, a celebration of Du Bois' birthday. So we, you know, so we, we should get ready for that. Now I know um, uh, Bandung and Viet Vietnam Lao are doing something. If, I don't know if someone could talk about that. It's planned, for, it's planned for the 29th of January. And oh, January. Yeah, Why so. I think it was in April. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the 20th anniversary of the school. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I think, but we, our two groups have been reading for a long time. 
um, mainly about the Korean War and the Vietnam War and America's involvement. Um, and basically the question of what can the people struggled in Korea and Vietnam inspire in a generation of young Asians in this country, but also how can it inspire that generation to not be pawns of an American war agenda and also a ruling elite that has a certain idea of what Asians should be in this country. Um, and also a lot of it has also been influenced by King. Um, King and his vision of positive unity for people in this country, his idea of the World House. Um, and the title of our event is called Korea, Vietnam, and Afro-America, our shared struggle for peace and democracy. Um, and we're finalizing the programming, but we think it's going to present a renewed vision of the Bandung spirit um, and King's idea of a world house for today's times. And we're hoping to also play the whole speech of King's time to the time to break silence speech, um, have cultural performances, um, have a panel that is kind of talking about the current state of nonprofits and what they're encouraging young Asian Americans to be. And then lastly, um, hopefully an Afro-Asian dialogue between um, various people in the city who have an idea of how the city should be governed. So Catherine Blunt, Helen Gim, um, and then I think a few other people we're hoping um, to confirm, but that's the vision right now. And if On or Jeremiah or anyone else from the group wants to talk about how it's been. But yeah, I mean, it's building upon a lot of what the free school, the vision the free school has built. Um, and we're really excited to carry the message to the city. question of any of you all. Uh, will you all be looking at the specifics of the uh, development, the economic, social development of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea and North Korea? I don't, I don't think so, so much for the no, not, I don't think so, so much. Okay, okay. But it is a question. Yeah. It's a question to be asked yeah. and explored. Yeah. For some reason, I would very much encourage you for the, because the specific ideological, as you know, uh, the IOC has, has forced North Korea to pull out of the Beijing Winter Olympics, mm. which is a terrible thing. And it's just the bullying of this country uh, again and again and again. And uh, I'm just, you know, I think something about, and I know you, uh, Jeremiah, you told me about this one theologian and scholar, South uh, oh. Korean, who is very pro North Korea. But I don't, I don't know. I'm just, yeah. that's my own suggestion. Yeah. I think it, I think even for, um, a lot of it, because a lot of it will focus on, I think, the Korean War also, and I think framing that as, because the way that it's framed, I think, whether in Korea or in the States is as like a civil war that the U.S. just happened to get involved in. But I think through our studies of people like Wilfred Burchett, I think um, reframing it as a people's war against imperialism, like American imperialism, um, which is how Wilfred Burchette described it. I think, well, I think that in itself is like a starting point, I think, towards like developing an understanding of also, of, yeah, the DPRK yeah. as well. Um, yeah, I think definitely like the question of North Korea and like 
their ideological consolidation and unity um, and what they represent, in, especially like today's times. I think, yeah, it's a, it's a question that I think should be pretty yeah. easily explored. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, if I might just say, as a foundational pillar of the struggle for peace in Northeast Asia, I mean, it is not an aggressor, it is not arming itself to aggress upon anyone, but to defend its people. I just, um, I, you know, if we, maybe we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit, but I think it is such an extraordinary human story. The whole Korean War, but then the rebuilding of North Korea. And that'll be on the 29th? 29th, yeah, Saturday. And, and where will it be? We're finalizing. Keep working it up. Yeah. 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 Right. Partying hardy, right? Okay. Any anything else on that? Sounds good. Sounds very, very good. Yes. Now I know that Nandatha and Raju just got married. <laughs> it was a beautiful thing. <laughs> um, but uh, they are planning, and I don't know when, a, um, an, a China-India event where I think, and this is just, I know I had discussions with them, I think, and it'll be Chinese scholars, Indian scholars, you know, uh, and others engaged in a discussion of democracy uh, and the two types of democracies, let us say, in India and China, but not, I don't think, antagonistic, mm -hmm. and to kind of break through and break down this whole Biden administration, quote, summit for democracy, end quote, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, turned out to be one of the great jokes of all time. But nonetheless, they keep pushing this ideological line. So I know that is going to happen. And then um, uh, in, well, I, I was thinking uh, May, May Day, the May Day week, weekend, the celebration of the 10th anniversary of the Blue School. And I hope we could put together an organizing committee very soon. And um, my initial thoughts, and you know, we could push it back and forth, is that the 10th anniversary be a commemoration of celebration of the civil rights movement. Uh, in the very way that Lotus is reading about it and Throughout the preschool, we keep reading about the civil rights movement and the leaders of it, uh, and um, and I, I think we had talked about perhaps uh, inviting Diane Nash to come, and you know we could do it all. You know how we how the preschool does things, uh, including perhaps a week of films. Documentaries, Eyes on the Prize, you know, so many films uh, 
King in the Wilderness, all of those great documentaries, which we could also use as a time to discuss them and so on. And I was thinking May Day because I thought the uh, uh, Van Dung uh, was going to be in April for some reason. <laughs> But we'll find something to do in April. And then I was just thinking one other thing is that maybe in June, a conference on the music and worldviews of John Coltrane and Sun Ra. Mm -hmm. And we could think about that. I mean, that would be a little bit different term. What did you say, Michelle? Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's part of the music. The soundtrack of the free school. I mean, we're all listening to all of this. <laughs> so, uh, so we got a full plate, and as well as the continual uh, intensifying reading and thinking of the free school itself. Uh, and I guess we'll say more about that as we enter upon uh, this new reading, this new thinking, uh, where we are going what we're trying to achieve uh, and, and why we are doing this at this time. Anybody got any questions or comments? Or anything? It's gonna be a busy year. It's gonna be a busy year. Oh, it's gonna be very, very busy. But I think it's, I think 2022 is going to be an important year for the world struggle and for political system in this country. Uh, I cannot see this administration uh, surviving in anything but tatters given the crisis that it's in uh, and what that will mean politically. Because, as you know, the ruling class has invested everything in the Biden administration. And what are the consequences for its failure, both domestically and? Hey, Jake, could you check out and see if anybody's in the dining hall? Anybody else in here? Um, as you know, uh, the Biden administration initially staked out a line of demarcation in Ukraine, and they, along with NATO, were talking like they wanted to go to war over Ukraine, and now they've seemingly backed away from that. Uh, and they've also drawn a line in the sand over uh, Taiwan. Um, and how that will play out, we'll see. Uh, but so much depends on the willingness of the American people to support a policy of war against China. So there's a lot that will be happening as we go forward. Uh, we haven't even talked about inflation. Uh, so all of that is in the mix. 
So this is going to be a very important year, maybe, and as they call it, an inflection year, a year, uh, a year where things take a different direction. The world takes a different direction, irreversibly away from a unipolar or single hege hegemonic nation to a, uh, many would say, a multipolar world. Uh, so, go ahead. Um, you know, to go back to the, um, you know, some of the ideas, you know, that we're trying to organize, I, I like a lot of them. Um, you know, for example, like John Coltrane, uh, I think Sun Ra, I think they'll both be important um, because uh, one thing that I uh, realized about jazz is that, you know, they're playing it from their life. <clears throat> they're playing it from their own life. You know, they're playing, you know, you literally have to, you know, try to say something with a, the instrument, you know. Um, and, you know, there is, it's, it's, it's encompassing um, in terms of, you know, that there's the aspects of life, you know, X, X, Y, and Z, and there's the political aspects, you know, um, and all that kind of comes out, like, for example, in the song Alabama. Um, you know about that was written or that was that they did after the um, the bomb in Birmingham. You know went off in the church and the four uh, girls you know passed away. Um, sad day for the country. Um, and and so I think uh, you know I, I guess we'll kind of have to think you know think things through and whatnot. Um, and you know that and I, you know the civil rights movement. I'm excited for that idea as well because you know we certainly need because uh, the problems are almost basically the same, you know, or not, or they've, they've only, they've evolved, you know, the problems have grown um, as, you know, people have, as the people have been pushed backwards, you know, there's more, um, how can I say, um, the, the problems, they become more intense. Um, and it's certainly, you know, what I feel is be a good starting point because the 60s, you know, to the 70s, 80s, 90s, and then we can kind of, understand uh you know what's happening today you know it gives us that it gives us a, a touchstone if you will um uh and so i you know i guess i feel that um you know adding you know in relation as well to the current moment and this is the whole point jake i mean you know we are the saturday preschool philosophy of black liberation. Mm -hmm. I mean, and the, the liberation part, which means of, of humanity itself, cannot be excluded. And and you're, you're right, I mean, for all kind of, I agree with you, I agree with you. And we're, and you know, we're, we're waging an ideological struggle against a ruling class that wants to keep things obscure and confused and so on and so forth. You know, so yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, for these first uh, couple of months, maybe, maybe more of this year, the preschool has agreed that we would read the great German philosopher, George Frederick Wilhelm, Wilhelm Hegel, better known as just Hegel, <laughs> um, especially his science of logic. Uh, 
Now this is a profound undertaking. I would not have proposed it on my own. It was proposed by Michelle. <laughs> this is where this idea came from, not from me. As I was saying to Michelle, I'm always a little bit shy or cautious about proposing what we read uh, because, you know, we're always being accused of, well, when the preschool is being accused of everything but being a child of God. Mm. <laughs> we're, we're reading too much or we're not reading enough. Mm. Or we're not reading the right things. We're not doing this. You know, it's, it's almost you make the perfect the enemy of the good. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I would not have, I would not have proposed it. Although I would, I mean, I was so uh, thrilled when Michelle proposed it. But uh, I want to ask Michelle, what inspired you to propose this? And this has been about uh, three weeks ago, if not a month ago. And if you could speak, Dr. Uh, like okay. Well, I'm not entirely sure why I proposed it. I think some of it was a creative impulse. <laughs> but but I think it comes back to this question of philosophy and how, like you said, we're the free school for philosophy and Black liberation. And having been in the free school for two and a half to three years now, um, and also with so many young people having joined the preschool, I felt that it was a good time for us to look a little bit farther back to the tradition of philosophy that we come from, because um, of course we know our, our origins in thinking and practice can be found in schools, but something we also talked a lot about in 2020 was Du Bois as a synthesis from Lenin, and then of course Lenin with, as a synthesis of Hegel. And I think, um, I felt that it was an undertaking that would be really worthwhile for us um, as young thinkers and older thinkers to understand, um, you know, what a revolutionary philosophy and practice would look like in this time. Um, and I also feel that it's it's a good study to undertake in preschool in particular because I think I know in in. My, my smaller reading group, Lotus, like I don't think I would feel prepared to describe and um, discover the historical context of the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, all in one sweep. I think we're much more familiar with the history of the 20th century in particular. But um, any foundation that we could build, I, I think would be, I think would serve us very well for you know this upcoming year and the years to come. Um, so I think especially Hegel's contribution of dialectical thinking and also his concepts like the negation of the negation. I was really interested in us discovering, you know, what that means for our practice as free school and seeing how we found that so much in our own thinking, but then also the thinking of people that we look to, like Du Bois, Grace Lee Boggs, King. Something that we've also talked about a lot is how all of them, each of them had a training in philosophy. Why is that? And and the last thing I'll note is that um, in some of our recent smaller discussions, I know, for example, Caleb had brought up that I think a lot of computer science students at Penn in search for purpose at this time have actually 
enrolled in an unprecedented rates of philosophy courses. So there's, you know, an increased turn to academic philosophy. But something that I was just talking with Doc about was how I also took a similar turn when I was an undergraduate at Penn. But, um, and I was in a philosophy course for two weeks where we talked about Hume and then Kant. And I was so, I was so completely, how do I describe? You know, so dissatisfied and so bored by the way that philosophy was presented that I, I dropped the course. And, and um, Grace Lee Boggs talked about something similar regarding her dissatisfaction with academic philosophy, but re recognizing that there was um, an inherent value to the practice of revolutionary philosophy. And I think that free school is the right um, body for us to kind of undertake the study of this practice of philosophy. I'm trying to remember how you um, broached it with me, how you brought it to me. Yeah, I, I don't remember, do you remember? I'm, I'm trying to remember because uh, you, you said something to the effect that um, you would like to study dialectics. Yeah. And I didn't, I mean, why, why did you, had you been reading with dialectics or something? I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, Maybe. Uh, and uh, I have to tell you, my initial response was excitement, but also the sense that, oh, boy, now I have to do a lot more work. <laughs> and I have been doing a lot of work since then, and I'll tell you about it. But I was more than excited that, that you wanted to do it. And I, I hope that all of us will be excited by doing this, and I think we will. And I can assure you that it will be nothing like the philosophy course that you took at the University of Pennsylvania. Nothing at all like that. And I'll, I'll explain why in a moment. You want to say something else, Michelle? Well, I think another reason I had suggested Hegel is because I think, I think I'm interested in understanding how, you know, these ruptures in thinking, when have they come about in history and how have they led to the advancement of human civilization and what was crystallized throughout the centuries in these different civilizations. Could you, you know, say, uh, do that once again, you might come up. Oh, okay. Um, no, I was saying, I think Hegel is interesting to study because, um, because of his rupture, you know, how he represented a rupture in thinking the way that King did for America and how that led to a higher stage of civilization. Um, yeah, but also human civilization in the way that, you know, philosophy was forever changed. In the way that philosophy was? Forever changed. Can you talk more about well, I think I think what I'm saying is, you know, looking to history to understand our historical moment on philosophical terms. Understand what it means? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah to understand our moment. <laughs> have you? Have, I don't know. Have, 
Has anybody read Hegel? I, mean, I, I, I know you have. <laughs> we'll get to that in one second. We're going to get to that in one second because that's part of the issue that I had to kind of work with. Exactly. Right, right. 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 Yeah. You know, because this is no small matter. Yeah. Believe me. I can't no, and I, you know, I don't know if anybody here has read any Hegel, and don't feel, don't take it personally. It's just that your education wasn't that good. That's all. I mean, I have to. <laughs> very poor education, and I, I'll explain to you why in a minute. Uh, and I, I could, I really, I think what Michelle. Uh, her initiative, I think it, it expressed, you know, something about, you know, what all of us are feeling that we wanted more philosophy. And I'll, I'll explain. And her understanding, I think, is my understanding of what philosophy is and what, how it functions or should function, and of what value uh, is it. You know, but I, I, I think given the um, environment, the cultural and ideological environment and educational environment that you all came up in, uh, everything discourages a serious engagement with philosophy. Everything, even the philosophers, you know, uh, and so I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. Well, I think it's really exciting. It's an exciting initiative to take because, like, I have never taken a philosophy course and I don't even know how to define philosophy. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like, even growing up, whether we're in elementary school, middle school, high school, college, philosophy, even if it's not called philosophy, I think it's integral to a human education. And I, it reminds me of when we were planning for the Chinese, um, the Communist Party of China conference, where we named the first day the artist, the philosopher, and the black painter. But in our discussions, like when Michelle, Alice, Doc, and I had our discussions about philosophy, Gracie Bob, but also Lily as an artist, but also how in some ways a philosopher is an artist, but an artist is a philosopher. It's, I don't know, there's something that makes sense about it. And it also reminds me, although I've never read Hegel, like Michelle said, so many of the people who have been able to grapple with the crisis in their time and to be able to have a vision for the future need philosophy. And like I think of Gracie Boggs, how she said that people who capture the dialectics of, dialectics of life the best is the Black worker. You know, the poetry of the Harlem Renaissance, Tante Cullen. You know, the music of jazz, how that is a, you know, the blues. Like you even said, Doc, I think you once texted me, like, in the blues, you will find that you will find a guide to embrace the highs of the lows and the lows of the highs. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and also, I thought one of my favorite chapters of Russian America by Du Bois, which in some ways is kind of a little, even though it's about the Soviet Union, some of it is also a little bit autobiographical, which is the beautiful writing. But he talked about his education at Harvard. And you know, he could have just spent the whole time saying like, Harvard is this and that, it gave me nothing, whatever. But what he talked about was how 
he how much how important it was for him to understand the history of philosophy. What was wrong about European philosophy and also the positives of certain German philosophers? Um, so I do think like even asking the question of like what why philosophy, what is philosophy, and being able to get the perspective from you in particular dog, I think is such a gift. And I'm really excited to read or learn about it. Anybody else? Yeah. Go, go, Jim. Also, going off of what everyone else is saying, I think um, if I remember correctly, a big part of the reason why even King was like not totally down with communism or Marxism was because he was like, I don't think that they like take Hegel seriously or something. Yeah, yeah, and um, I think yeah. Recently, I, I reread the Pilgrimage to Nonviolence by King, and um, it's totally true that he went through the entire canon of like Western philosophy, and that led him to Asia. But um, yeah, I don't know. Just like, I, I think like we've spent like the past like however many like year. I mean, I guess we're being here in Philly, but. Like listening to also like you describe like the movement of history, like how things have happened, and I think um, especially because you know with our discussions about like what is the free school, like where are we headed, like the free school as a place to cultivate young people who can govern society. I think um, I think it is essential to like actually have that training because yeah, like I also. I took like one philosophy course in like my freshman year of college, but it was not, I didn't really learn anything. Um, and um, yeah, like I, I think that it is an area where like we kind of have like a feel for it because a lot of us have read Du Bois, especially, and like some stuff like Black Reconstruction and like the dialectic of the Black worker and the white worker, the moving class. But like, I don't know, there, I feel like there's like something underneath it which. Like it's still like fill in the blank. Like it's not totally um, clear, at least to me yet. So, so yeah. You know, um, you know, uh, just adding to what you all have been saying, I think philosophy of all of the areas of knowledge is that area of knowledge which so easily and naturally fits the common person. You know, it's almost as though human beings are natural philosophers, or human beings naturally deal with philosophical questions. And in a lot of ways, that's the appeal of religion, because religion deals with big ideological and ethical issues. And the common person is constantly concerned with questions of philosophy, life, death, good, bad, um, what should society be? What is the ethical thing to do? Uh, and especially in a crisis like the one we're facing, I think the desire to know 
philosophy or to know specific things in more general ways is a strong urge among ordinary people. Uh, so uh, philosophy, you know, most people I would say, I, I know at one time when uh, people would go to college, those young students, freshmen, let us say, who were more, most interested in ideas, they all wanted to be philosophy majors until they took their first philosophy <laughs> course, you know, and they threw in the towel. None of this is worth, worth it, you know. But um, so people who say, why would you enter upon an enterprise of studying philosophy at a time when people are suffering. Mm -hmm. And I would answer that is the best time to study philosophy. Uh, and not just as academics do, and not, not as academics do. In fact, the opposite of what academics do. The other thing is, why Hegel? You know, Hegel is the most controversial philosopher, modern philosopher. Uh, if you want to get into an argument with a philosopher, mention the name Hegel. Uh, I'm going to explain that one, and this is very honest. Uh, why is that? What makes him so controversial? Why is he more controversial than Immanuel Kant? Or John Locke? You know, or Spinoza? You know, or Plato, or Aristotle? Why is Hegel so controversial? Let me just, before I answer that question, you know, uh, one of the things about American philosophy is that for the most part, it does not have a positive program. American academic philosophy is primarily concerned with uh, giving reasons why they reject European or German philosophy, of which they really mean Kant and really Hegel. That's, that's you know, uh, all the professors are brought up not having read Hegel, by the way, I, I, that's the other thing. Uh, you, can, you can have three PhDs in philosophy in the United States and never have read Hegel. You know, uh, Hegel um, is difficult. He is argumentative, especially towards his predecessor, his nearest predecessor, in philosophy, Immanuel Kant, he doesn't like the guy. <laughs> I mean, and, and he doesn't hold his tongue. It's not like, oh, he said something I disagreed with. He just took him down, and I'll explain that in a minute. The other thing is, Hegel is what in American philosophy they call a systems builder. He wanted to uh, build a philosophy that could explain the world. 
he was building a philosophical system. And so, you know, most of us know Hegel's um, a dialect, I mean, uh, a science of logic and phenomenology, variously named phenomenology of spirit, phenomenology of mind. And the reason they, you know, spirit and mind are interchangeable is because it's a matter of how to interpret the German word Geist. And I'll come back to that. But then he writes all of these lectures on the philosophy of history. And then he has all of these lectures on the history of philosophy. I mean, I don't know how a single person, he must have had a, a, a research assistant, <laughs> at least somebody that wrote down all of his lectures as he spoke, because the body of work is, um, you know, beyond imagination. And, and of course, because we are reading him in translation, there's always a lot missing. And the German philosophers, Kant or Heidegger or Hegel, all of them are very idiosyncratic in the use of the German language, which means that it's hard to translate it into English. But having said all of that, uh, he is painted by most uh, 20th century, especially American and British philosophers, as this dark, presence in philosophy, that he's, uh, that he's coming up with this negative uh, outlook on world movement or the movement of ideas, that uh, the only people that could take Hegel seriously were the revolutionaries like Karl Marx or Lenin, which meant that he wasn't, that Hegel wasn't worth anything because if he was all of that, uh, why didn't Alfred North Whitehead or Bertrand Russell or you know some of these people or uh, William James or you know why didn't they become Hegelians? Uh, why did these marginalized thinkers like Marx or Engels or Lenin, these revolutionaries, why were they attracted to Hegel? And that's because like Hegel, they were dark and negative. And you know all of that. So uh, you know, you like I say, you can have three PhDs in philosophy from the best universities in the United States and still never have read Hegel seriously, uh, and certainly never reading the science of logic. This is, I mean, and so American philosophers are in this, uh, how, how would you put it, like this defensiveness, you know, oh, he ain't all that. Well, what, what do you mean he ain't all that? He, he ain't, he, he's just uh, repeating himself and he, he got this from Aristotle. Well, you ain't even read the man, so I, you know he ain't all that. <laughs> you know how, like hate, hate, like haters hate. So you get a whole academic philosophy thing, and the whole thing is predicated upon hating. Mm. So, uh, 
just like if you take a guy that he's he's just a normal looking cat and a really handsome guy comes along and he's like, oh yeah, he might be handsome, but he his mind, he's dumb. <laughs> Why are you tearing a man down? <laughs> but I don't know. So, but that is that is kind of the spirit of it. And so outside of a brief kind of engagement with Hegel in the late 1900s, 1800s, there's never been a serious thing with Hegel, except perhaps for Du Bois, and I'll explain that. But as to philosophy, uh, you know, there was a German historian of war guy by the name of Clausewitz. You may have heard of him. Clausewitz uh, was famous for saying, war is politics by other means. That war is just politics uh, taken to that level of arms. I would say that philosophy is politics by other means. To do philosophy as it should be done is not a retreat from the political and ideological struggles. It is entering into it in a most serious way. Without philosophy, revolutionary politics is virtually impossible. You show me a revolutionary that was not reading and studying philosophy. Uh, I can show you you know, a human being that lives all of her or his life walking around with hands. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is no philosopher or no revolutionary that is not at the same time a philosopher or an aspiring philosopher. In fact, you study the biographies of revolutionaries. And by revolutionaries, I'm really talking about people committed to fundamental social transformation. They all study philosophy. I mean, King's speeches are often philosophical lectures. And that's what makes him so beautiful and poetic and uh, such. Uh, of course, we know of Mao's philosophical writings in the, in the uh, Yunnan period. We know Fidel's reading of philosophy, Che Guevara, everybody, everybody. As Henry Winston says, and this is a great, um, a great optimistic statement, we drink from the well of knowledge, no matter where it is. 
That's a statement of optimism and of humility. You know? And I just wish that more people in the Communist Party uh, imbibed that spirit. You know, we could have better weathered the crises that we faced. But um, so we are not retreating from the struggle by studying philosophy. We're going, we're getting more involved in it. And a lot of people ask me, you know, with bell hooks passing away, what did I think of bell hooks? And I said, well, to answer the question, what I think of bell hooks, I got to talk about more than bell hooks. Mm -hmm. We have to talk about the moment, what the Germans called the Geist, the spirit of that time, of this time. Bell hooks does not arise because she is brilliant. She arises because there is ideological and institutional support for the ideas that she represents. Um, so to understand bell hooks, you have to understand more than bell hooks. To understand, um, for example, Ibram uh, Kendi, you have to understand far more than Ibram Kendi. Uh, and on and on and on. And to understand more than them, it's kind of like what they call, what, Kant, what certain Kantians would call the deep structure, the underlying assumptions, the groundwork upon which ideas that are popular are based upon. Now, uh, uh, Hegel. Hegel is, if one takes what is considered the history of philosophy, and, and granted, what we call the history of philosophy is really the history of philosophical ideas in the West. Although I don't consider Plato and Aristotle and Socrates to be European or Western thinkers. They are more a synthesis of Afro-Asiatic philosophy. Uh, I mean, uh, Afro-Asiatic and what we could ultimately call European uh, ideas. It's a, it's not the Greece is not it's not in itself a thing in itself. Greece uh, is a part of a larger civilizational context of vortices. But if we go from the earliest uh, Greek thinkers, what they call the pre-Socratics, prior to Socrates, up to the German philosophers. Uh, this history of philosophy reaches its high point with Hegel. Hegel is by all accounts the most consequential philosopher of, in the last 600 years. Pardon me, 
I'm sorry, forgive me. Uh, since 600 BC, I'm sorry. Uh, the pre-Socratics going forward. No philosopher has had such an enduring impact upon thought as Hegel has. The decline of discussions of Hegel have more to do with the overall reactionary character of ideological and political conditions than anything else. In other words, in reactionary periods, you don't hear a lot about Hegel. In revolutionary periods, you hear a lot about Hegel. For example, um, uh, Serafina sent me uh, a chapter from Grace Lee and James Boggs's book, I think the evolution of revolution, evolution and revolution. They have a chapter on dialectics. Well, it's very natural. In a period of social movement, great involvement of people, Hegel becomes interesting. Dialectics becomes interesting. In a period of reaction, by reaction I mean the absence of a great people's movement, when the ruling class dominates ideas and politics and so on. In periods like that, you hear talk about um, uh, the self, my gender, my sexuality, my uh, race, my, it's me, 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 me. It is uh, absent historical understanding. It's absent a sense of the movement of ideas, of the movement of people. So Hegel goes out of style in reactionary periods. He's back in style in revolutionary periods. But let me just step back on philosophy and Hegel. You know, um, you know, Hegel's first great work is in 1804, The Phenomenology of Spirit. Phenomenology is another of the ologies. Ologies mean study of. Phenomenology is the study of phenomena. Uh, I guess the philosopher who made this whole question of phenomenology or phenomenon central was Immanuel Kant. Because he said the only thing that we can know are the phenomenon that are given to us through our senses. Taste, smell, sight, hearing, and so on. That's what we know. Beyond that are what he called noumena. We can't know that. Those are things in themselves. Phenomena are things for us things for, our, for us to know. Hegel says, B.S. Mm -hmm. Now, in saying that, Hegel comes up with a phenomenology that all that we know 
is a result of a great historical movement of ideas and of civilization and of culture. It's not just the reason, the rational capacity of a individual. It is what society and what civilization makes possible at certain stages of development. So where Kant would be called a structuralist, when we talk about structuralism in philosophy, we're talking about the deep ideas. We're not talking about physical structures. So a structuralist in philosophical terms is always one who believes in searching out the underlying ideas of, of, a, of a certain thought, of a certain way of reasoning. Okay. Uh, for Kant, these were uh, especially time and space. All of our reasoning occurs within a framework of time and space. Two foundational concepts. I'm not going to go a lot into Kant, but the opposite of the structuralist analysis is the historical analysis. History is the movement of ideas. In history, this is Hegel, over historical time, we get closer to understanding the world in which we live. So that's the big split. Hegel did not like Kant. Hegel said, well, why did you go to the English thinkers like David Hume or John Locke or uh, George Berkeley? Why did you go to those sellouts? And when did he write the Hume? He wrote in the 18th century, 1870. He said, you know, why? Um, you sold that already. And he attacked Kant viciously for making this compromise, which led to what we call Kantian philosophy, compromise between British empiricists and German rationalism. I won't get a lot into that, but he attacked him. You know, he called him every bad name that we use when we're not in the church. <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating. So for American and English thinkers, Kant is a more comfortable space because he draws upon the English thinkers like Hume, John Locke, and so on. Oh, he gives us credit. But so, uh, so if you if you if you look at uh, American or English philosophy, to the extent that they draw upon continental European things, it's mainly Kant. Kant is a comfortable figure for that. Uh, 
And sometimes they just do away with Kant altogether and just go to the English thinkers, like the ones I mentioned, David and so forth. We won't get into a lot of that, but there is a cultural kind of predisposition. We're in the United States, we like to keep it, quote, simple. Mm. Don't get too complicated. Uh, you know, and the German philosophers, they just get too complicated and it's metaphysics and it's dark. You take a philosophy course, even a graduate philosophy course, you could sit and hear a so-called professor talk just the way I'm talking. You know what I'm saying? And in fact, they would say that the English and American thinkers, philosophers, are much superior to the German philosophers. When in fact, the opposite is the case, believe me. And their, their argument is that, well, these German philosophers like Kant and, and certainly Hegel have just made things more complicated. And to add insult to injury, the only people that really like Hegel are Marx and Lenin and the revolutionaries. And you see where that takes you. It takes you away, and underline this point, it takes you away from liberal democracy. <laughs> now they, they throw, you know, it's like after everything, now I'm gonna throw all the garbage and doo-doo uh, and shit, I'm gonna throw that in there. <laughs> They're dark and they lead to um, uh, Marxism. And, but we, John Locke, in particular, we're for liberal democracy. You see how ugly it is and how, it, how dishonest it is. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. It's so, if I weren't in the church, I would be cursing real hard right now. And you all can imagine some of the words I'd be using. It's so much in bad faith. You know, that it's hard to even describe. Now, philosophy and Hegel. Hegel dies, I think, in 1820 something. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. No, it comes out in 04. No, no, Khan dies in 04. That's right. Uh, Hegel dies in 1820, 1831. 1831. After Hegel dies, a literal industry of philosophers uh, rises up to bring him down. Uh, their philosophers and their theologians. One of the most prominent in this regard is Frederick Nietzsche. Anybody familiar with Nietzsche? Thus spoke Zarathustra, beyond good and evil. The Superman, the power. Man and super, that's right, that's right. And, uh, and of course, uh, Nietzsche is the perfect antidote to Hegel. Of course, I'm not trying to build a philosophical system, Nietzsche would say, I'm just trying to understand my own anxiety. Is that familiar? <laughs> I'm just trying to get myself together in a world that's complicated. That's why if you took a course in philosophy, 
you would read Nietzsche, mm -hmm. right? You know, now I read Nietzsche when I was young. Thus spake Zarathustra. I liked the work very much. But what could I know at 18? You know, I'm the same way. I'm trying to figure my own self out. You know, I'm anxious. I got all this sexual energy. What's going on? I'm praying every day. Myself under control. <laughs> so, I'm just trying to keep it 100. So, I mean, Nietzsche is a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And that's what, you know, my professors, they're young and stupid. <laughs> you know, not at, not at Lincoln. At Lincoln, yeah. they did come. Okay. Yeah. okay. But, so, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a feel-good thing. <laughs> it's a feel-good thing. But so Nietzsche and then um, uh, Kierkegaard, mm -hmm. the theologian, you know, I'm wandering in the wilderness seeking to find God. You know what I'm saying? That's all good. <laughs> but compared to Hegel and the greater work of philosophy, it's very um, trivial. Mm -hmm. But then at the end of the 19th century, and this is what is important to realize, a, a two, two trends emerge. One we call neo-Hegelianism. Neo meaning new or revised Hegelianism. The Neo-Hegelians, uh, they found the place and they became popular in St. Louis, by the way. Uh, the the uh, St. Louis Hegelians, that's a deep thing. Mm -hmm. I didn't even, <laughs> there's no philosophical or intellectual school that I know of that came out of St. Louis. <laughs> now, you may have heard of the song, the St. Louis Blues. There was, there was a lot of blues down there. The St. Louis is in Missouri, Missouri is part of the South, you know, but anyway. But anyway, but the Neo-Hegelians tried to find a synthesis between Hegel's dialectic of history and existentialism. So what they did is to make the dialectic a psychological thing. I'm struggling with the unity of opposites within myself. Am I man or am I woman? Okay. You know what I'm saying? What will the synthesis, you know, uh, you understand this. It is a trivialization of Hegel. The reduction of the dialectic to psychological questions. This will reappear in the Frankfurt School of Social Research in the 1920s in Germany. Because rather than address the contradictions of a, of a capitalist and imperialist system, they address the contradictions of the self. But then there was a more serious engagement with it. And that was in the ranks of the social democratic movement. Social democracy at the end of the 1800s, the latter part of the 1800s, was not what we see today in like the democratic socialists of America. It was still a broad uh, 
coalition of revolutionaries of various tendencies. But some uh, were more like Lenin, others uh, were more like anarchists, others were revisionists of Marxism. But nonetheless, they were all political and they were all activists. They took Hegel very seriously and they took philosophy very, very seriously. It is their approach to philosophy which will inform our approach to philosophy. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. We are not guided by academic philosophers who are useless. I can't tell you, I'm gonna give you a couple of things, how useless they are. I mean, it's, you know, it's almost that you, uh, the only thing that you can express to it is just utter contempt, you know? Uh, just very useless and self-centered. Um, but we are taking an approach that is similar to what the revolutionary and working class thinkers of the late 1800s, that approach, that to do philosophy is to do politics. In fact, of all the areas of knowledge, none is more political than philosophy. Or to put it another way, no discipline, no knowledge discipline is so partisan, partisan meaning taking aside, as is philosophy. That in the field of philosophy, even in its watered down, uh, infantile and baby kind of way it's taught in the academy, even that retreat from philosophy is politics. Does it make, make sense? It's the politics of the coward. You know, I, 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 can't, I can't confront this thing. I ain't read Hegel, I don't know that. So I ain't gonna try to deal with it, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna create this alternative called postmodernism. You understand? Called fourth wave feminism. <laughs> you know, just give just give everything a different name and make and then because you have the institutional support of the capitalist class that we're made to believe. Oh wow, mm. this person is really throwing down. You know, what I'm when really they ain't doing nothing but running from the fundamental questions. But that is a political position. You see what I'm saying? However, in the late 19th century, Hegel is revived by the Marxist. You dig what I'm saying? Ironic, is it not? And the great synthesis 
that they had to affect is a synthesis between Hegel's logic, dialectics, and materialism. They had to bring the two together. Karl Marx said to turn Hegel on his head, to take what he called the rational kernel, that which is revolutionary in Hegel, and that is the logic, and combine it with that philosophical outlook without which you couldn't do science, that is materialism. <clears throat> but to, to, to do science, even at its just experimental level, you have to assume a world outside of you. That mass and energy is not dependent upon your perception of it or your experience of it. It exists in the world. And there therefore is a world of the subject and an objective world. So I'm saying? Hegel had this, and some people say, well, he recovered dialectics from the ancient worlds, ancient worlds, that throughout the world, thinkers had always thought in dialectical terms. But what Hegel gives us is scientific dialectics. In fact, in this you might wish to underline this. Hegel said that philosophy is the science of sciences. That science needed a science to guide it. Today, let's say we take anthropology, neurobiology, uh, computer science, take all the sciences that we study in college or wherever. Well, Hegel said, well, they're just doing the uh, mechanical work of experimentation and so on and so forth. They have their little laboratories and they, you know, people that like to do that, do that. He said, but to explain what they are doing and what their results are, you need a higher science, and that is philosophy. A science of sciences. And in the end, philosophy for Hegel is grounded in logic. It's, it's breathtaking. And, and you know, one, one can just see, I mean, look, Let's say you're a freshman and you're coming into a philosophy course and a professor stands up and says that there was a philosopher and yada yada and said, just like I said, man, that would, you'd say, well, God damn, I'm interested. Let's get busy. Mm. <laughs> Rather than somebody come in and say, well, um, you know, and you don't understand a damn word he's saying because <laughs> he's using words and language that are so removed from the human experience that he looks smart and you look dumb. 
you know what I'm saying, the pedagogy of, of establishing a hierarchy where the professor knows it all and you just sort of, you know, a, a schmuck. <laughs> you, you felt that at times. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I'm, I'm here to make you feel that you ain't worth a dime. You know what I'm saying? And I'm all that. You ever have that kind of professor? You say, if you were, if you weren't afraid, you, well, good. I won't. I won't. I won't, uh -huh. I won't provoke murder. But here already, the philosophy that says that all history and all matter exists in a constant state. That the objective of logic and philosophy is to understand is the laws of development of things generally. Let's say as a pressure. The laws of development, yes, of our society, that all things move or in motion, not because of external forces pushing them, but because of the internal dynamics, right? And then the philosopher, the teacher might say, well, and Hegel, revolutionized logic. And in revolutionizing logic, he revolutionized philosophy. The key word here is revolution. One could arguably say that even with, you know, the kind of what we'd say the idealist shell, is a revolutionary essence in Hegel. If you want to think in revolutionary philosophical terms, you don't have a problem with Hegel. If you have a problem with radical and revolutionary change, you got a problem with Hegel. Unless you ain't Neo again. And it's like taming Hegel, bringing him down. Down, taking all the, the energy out of him, you know what I'm saying? Making him, this is, this is Don Washington, older than his years. <laughs> See, if I make you a Neo something, I take all the life out of him. You know what I'm saying? Hegel on his own is filled with energy. He's a, you know, he's on the move. Mm. If I Neo you, all that energy is gone. You got to be on the walker. Maybe I'll, I'll give you an electrified wheelchair. <laughs> See, I didn't kneel you out of existence. But at the end of the 1800s, Marxists who were looking, who had to get these philosophical questions straight because all the universities were destroying the revolutionary essence of Hegel. You know, and that's what universities do. And they really do it today. They're not places, oh, I'm going to the university. I'm going to learn. No, 
you get there, you say, oh, I'm in a university. I'm not supposed to learn. I'm supposed to bow down. So Hegel came under all out attack. He's a dark voice. He's negative. Oh, all he can talk about is change. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we want to make what we got better. You ever hear that one? <laughs> We're trying to improve this, and all you want to do is change this. That's what's <laughs> a joke, frankly. But and so Hegel looked back to Aristotle and the three laws of formal logic. Aristotle said the three laws of logic. Law of identity of things always itself. Law of contradiction. The thing is not itself and its opposite at the same time. And this is the key one. The law of the excluded middle. Thing cannot be itself and its opposite. And Hegel said things are always themselves and their opposites. Mm -hmm. yep. The condition of existence is a thing is always itself. That is the dialect. And in the logic, science of logic, Hegel goes through all of the sciences of that time. Of course, 200 years later, we would have to look at logics of phenomenon differently. We have different, we know more things. First of all, there was no theory of relativity when Hegel wrote. So he had to deal with uh, physics of mechanics, Newtonian physics. Uh, there was no theory of, um, of quantum mechanics. We were dealing with probabilities. Uh, so, there, there's much, much more in the realm of science, the natural science, physics, chemistry, biology, than existed at Hegel's time. But I think it would be fair to say that motion itself exists in this dialectical state. Now, what is the dialectic? We will come back to that. We will come back to that because that's gonna say a lot about how we understand the project of American so social transformation. We'll come back to that. But at any rate, you know, just like today, if you go to a university, you have a big department of history, probably a big department of sociology. 
a sizable department of literature, both modern and pre-modern, I guess, you know. Uh, and then you have somewhere over in the corner of the philosophy department. And you know, they walking around <laughs> mad half the time. <laughs> Mad going crazy. Yeah. And, and talking trash to each other <laughs> and drunk. <laughs> but if Hegel had organized the university, you would have a huge philosophy department. And philosophy would be a part of the discussions in all other disciplines. Does that make sense? That physicists would know philosophy that computer scientists would know philosophy. At least they would know dialectics. And they would know, therefore, what to look for as they do their research. But then, I know when I mentioned that uh, I have a friend, he lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And um, so I called him, you know, Merry Christmas. And uh, I said, you know, in a preschool, I think we're going to start reading Hegel. And, you know, uh, the first thing he said is, well, didn't he say that Africa had no history? Mm -hmm. I said, yes, he did. I said, but that is not cause for canceling him. There's much more to him than just that. He was ignorant, as was Kant. They didn't know Africa from a can of paint. <laughs> so, but they didn't know what they knew. And their contribution cannot be dismissed. So again, you get the Afrocentrists. We don't, you know, and and all of that was previously discovered in ancient Egypt. So, well, yeah, probably, maybe, but can you give me the text? Well, I'm still looking for it. I'm, you know what I'm going to do? Wait for the next 300 years? <laughs> no, we, history moves on. You deal with ideas as they are presented uh, in the world. Uh, you can get certain feminists. Well, we're not going to read Hegel because he was a white man. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> But see, you can read Hegel or Kant directly, or you can read them indirectly. You know, you might not read them, might not be aware of it, but you might be grounding your thought in a Kantian structural assumption about knowledge. So you said, I don't like Kant, but you say, but excuse me, the framework you're thinking out of is Kantian. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? So the question is not whether you read him. The question is, did the zeitgeist overdetermine the way you think? And I would argue, yes. Yeah. So you go. Yeah, right. So you you go into you go into a graduate course, and uh, let us say in African American studies, and you know we're. Uh, looking at all these deep classical African thought, this, that, and the other. He said, well, hold it, uh, uh, hold it, hometown. 
but you proceeding using a similar method of Claude Levi-Strauss, the French structuralist anthropologist. No, I'm not. I'm using ancient Egyptian, Afrocentric. No, you're not, money. So what we have is a, uh, a situation of the blind leading the blind. You don't know what you're thinking and how you're thinking because you have not studied in any deep sense the groundwork upon which your thought is based, what your reasoning is based. Let, I'm, I'm gonna stop and just say, uh, uh, when, this is lesson, when Michelle said to me, Doc, you know, you think you can read Hegel? I said, I, I think we can, but have you ever considered maybe we could do Lenin's Inspectus on Hegel's Science of Logic? That's in volume 38 of Lenin's Collected Works. Because I was saying, it's not going to be too much heavy lifting for me to go through the science of logic. And y'all going to be looking at me every week. And I'm going to have to be, you know, spending the whole week preparing and reading. Uh, <laughs> Honestly, that's the way I felt. Michelle was just so happy. And so <laughs> but, you know, that's a lot of work for me, girl. But... Yeah, I, my first thing was Lenin's conspectus. Then I looked at Lenin, I said, no, that's not going to do it. Mm -hmm. Because it, it almost assumes that you have Hegel's science of logic right beside you. <laughs> and you've got the same page numbers that he's referring to. <laughs> so I said, but, and so uh, Danny uh, Eisenberg, he was sending a lot of things, he's posting a lot of things on Facebook of, um, uh, from Lenin's book, Materialism and Imperial Criticism, the chapter six. And I think it's a very valuable chapter because Lenin makes the argument very strongly that uh, these academic philosophers are really salesmen. <laughs> <laughs> for the ruling class, for capitalism, under the guise of being, oh, I'm just a philosopher. And he called, he called these academics blockheads, uh, you know, and he, he really abused them. And I think what, what our experiences are with most professors, and I, I don't mean to, you know, I mean, we all have a professor that we loved, and that was nice to us. But when you take the whole group, you're dealing with uh, kind of the weakest, uh, you know, where they talk about herd immunity. <laughs> you know, they're the weakest elements that in a Darwinian sense, they would be bred out <laughs> of the herd if they weren't protected by the institution. I hate to say it. I mean, I look at the black ones and, um, <laughs> These are people who, you know, back in the days, uh, well, just to start with the basic, you couldn't get a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> no girl liked that. They were too, you know, uh, as we say, jive, too dorky, too 
So what are they, if you can't do that, what do you do? Oh, I'm gonna be the smartest black person in my class. And I'm gonna show all of those girls that didn't like me that I'm gonna get a PhD. Or you know, the person, and I'm gonna go male-wise, I'm on the male side now, you know, that, um, that they couldn't do anything like, you know, like dance, Dancing was a big thing. Mm. They couldn't, they didn't participate in any sports. Mm. They were just the weakest. Who, if you use social Darwinian theory, which is racist, but you use social Darwinism, you know, they would have died off <laughs> in the evolutionary process. The weakest of the weak. But yet, they found the niche in academics. And now I'm the professor and, you know, you rejected me when I wanted you. I tried to date you and you looked down on me. Now I'm going to hold all of y'all responsible and I'm going, you know, you're going to pay a terrible price for collective guilt. So, I'm no, describing academics. You'll understand it better by and by. But the academy celebrates cowardice, not strength, not good faith, not honesty. Mm -hmm celebrates cowardice. And so philosophy might be that area of the greatest cowardice. And so we wish not to do philosophy as cowardice, but as revolutionaries. We wish to see philosophy as politics. We wish to take on Hegel as a way of understanding many of the ideological issues that confront us, but also a way of considering a theory of knowledge, a logic of knowing that is commensurate with the world that we live in. If all things are in motion by definition, then a theory of knowing the world, a way of practice of knowing the world, cannot be one that acts like everything standing still. So, Michelle and I agreed that we would begin by doing the two prefaces to the science of logic and the introduction that we would do reading, reading aloud. Now, Caleb has found a PDF of the science of logic. 
which is a good one, it's a great one. And um, we can make that available to everyone. Uh, and I think next week we can begin. And if, if any of you just want to go ahead and read all of it at once, and, you know, <laughs> be my guest. <laughs> just don't call me late at night asking questions. <laughs> but um, if that's if that's acceptable, and uh, Michelle, maybe you will say something else. No. Say that again. You can buy it on Amazon too, yes. And by the way, uh, don't do, I mean, if you want to, go ahead and read what Wikipedia has to say, or, you know, or maybe you get a good uh, dictionary of philosophy. But please, don't read that and think you know what it's about. I think when you read Hegel, you'll be very impressed with his uprightness, his honesty. Uh, so I had a couple of thoughts um, about Hegel and like the different philosophical uh, strains or the different um philosophies you're talking about the different philosophers um i guess to start out um yeah i, I do think about that i like this a, a little bit you know the thesis not antithesis um and that i do see that as being um and the proper practical application as, as found in marxism um you know, the you know, bourgeois working class, right? Mm -hmm. um, I do see that. I do see that. Um, there's different things that I think about when it comes to the dialectic, dialectical question. I think Asia does it better. It? China. I think Asia does it better. Um, but I, I, that's, I, I'll kind of get to that point. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what's interesting about some of the different philosophers is like the uh, historical moments out of which they were writing. Mm. So for example, like David Hume, I looked him up, he lived from 1711 uh, to 1776, right, right in the time okay. of the American Revolution. Um, and some of these empiricists um, who I think, I, I guess, you know, they developed into Nietzsche and then developed Kierkegaard and so on and so forth, you know, these different, and then, you know, there's this place, there's the American philosophy, you know, we, um, and there's different ide ideological currents in America that are like as old as America itself, um, you know, as illustrated by the boys of Toy and Z. But I think what's interesting about the empiricists is that they're writing out of a time where, you know, Britain was still a colonial power. Um, and philosophically, it's, con it's rather convenient, you know, uh, for, things to be, for things to be on the surface if you're exploiting someone, up, you know, um, okay, well, that's just an Indian, or okay, that's just an African, you know, we can take their gold, that's just, that's, that's, that's just, we are, we can define them as, you know, and, and on the same basis of empiricism, um, you know, it's, it's used in America, these, these categories, you know, Baldwin talks about the categories and how they um, boomerang us into our own uh, 
um, misunderstanding of um, but it's but it's convenient uh, for the state to use uh, these ideas, you know, to continue to to, to keep people confused. Um, I think I would illustrate um, the uh, the philosophical downside of empiricism through just looking at things. So I could look at a building, right? And okay, that building, that's a building. Um, but if it's just a building, it's not a church. You know what I mean? So if, 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 if there's nothing underneath it, there's no reason, you know, then it's inhuman and it doesn't, you don't really have to deal with it. You don't have to, do, you know, don't have to deal with it. And I think it's convenient. I mean, the development, I mean, because, because uh, you know, I mean, as described in the world of Africa, uh, Du Bois talked about how, um, you know, Britain, you know, shifted, I guess it was in maybe the late, early 1800s. They shifted to an imperialist, being an imperialist power as opposed to a colonial power, winning the the sort of the good will of the of the European X, Y, and Z, um, but still exploiting places like India and China, um, and taking um, what was trillions uh, of, of dollars worth of you know wealth, um, um, and I guess you know there are I don't want to go on too long. Stop me at any point. Let me just tell you something. Just what you're doing is very important. I would, and I wanted to mention this under contempt about it. I would encourage you, in fact, I would very much like you to do this. Uh, Cornell West does nine lectures uh, on Du Bois's philosophy of history of darkness. I think a couple of summers ago. Uh, uh, just, uh, I think I got a YouTube, just do a YouTube, Cornell West, the boys of philosophy of history. And, the, you know, and, and as much as I love Cornell West, and I do, it, he demonstrated to me, both in his understanding of philosophy, his philosophical predisposition, and in his pedagogy. What, what, I don't like academic <laughs> You know, you, I, I mean, I'd be so interested in your take on it. Um, I'm finding it almost impossible to get through because, you know, in talking about Du Bois, he takes all of the life out of Du Bois. You There's a lot of life in there. Yeah, it's a lot of. I mean, Du Bois is, is full of living, you know, but. Then there is another, and somebody, y'all might wish to look at this. Um, uh, there is a discussion of reconstruction. Mm -hmm. I think you saw it. Uh, yeah, with uh, Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders. Um, so it was Bernie Sanders, Eric Boner, um, Cornell West, and Kianga, Yamada Taylor. Amen. 
if you ever wanted to know why you don't want to go to college, <laughs> you know, the only reason you go is to get a job. Duh. When you, I'm telling you, when you, now we, we've been through work out of Black Reconstruction and all of this. First of all, Bernie Sanders is embarrassingly ignorant and dumb. Just, I mean, check, and if I'm wrong, please correct me. I'm saying, can you get any dumber than this? Then, uh, Eric Foner. You know, Eric Foner writes this big book on reconstruction. His magnum opus. This is why he has tenure at Columbia, because of this book. This is what, you know, and I remember Cornell back in the days, not that long ago. Whenever you talk about reconstruction and read the monumental work of Eric Fowler. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I've read the quote, monumental work of Eric Fowler. I don't recommend it. <laughs> but he mentions Du Bois once mm -hmm. in the preface. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on to write six, seven hundred pages to refute the words. That's Bonner? Eric Bonner. Then, I mean, I just, I want you guys to look at this mm -hmm. because, I mean, the way you, you know, you all see things that I don't see and, you know, it's just very interesting the way you guys can analyze things uh, so much better than me, frankly. I, I would very much like you guys to look at that and those nine lectures by Cornell. I'm having a problem getting through them. Yeah. I really am. It's so long, it's like an hour. Uh, an hour piece, yeah. and it's a summer school yeah. at Dartmouth College. And it's Du Bois's philosophy of history. Now, I don't think that Cornell can understand Du Bois's philosophy of history because he cannot understand Du Bois's Black Reconstruction. Can't understand it. Uh, he doesn't have the logical tools. To the extent that Cornell and thinkers like Cornell address logic, and this this is a problem. This this is a problem for logic. Period. Because see, logic has been appropriated by mathematics and computer science. So most people have no way of accessing what logic is doing or what it's about. You know, this is when everything is so damn specialized, in order to take a course in logic, I have to go in the department of computer science or mathematics. Why? <laughs> You understand what I'm saying? So, so you've turned what is a general science into a, 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 a field of specialization. So then the theologian philosopher like Cornell does not deal with logic because that is not apparently a part of theological, ethical, 
questions. But if you read Black Reconstruction, it is also a study, a work in logic. If you understand what the hell is going on. You understand? It's, it's just, oh, well, go ahead, Jerry. Well, yeah, because I, um, I, I watched the, the, the Bernie thing with the yes, yes. and um, I, I totally agree because I feel like when we, when in our reading group, when we read Black Reconstruction, like one of the big things, or I feel like two of the big things that you get from it is in the way Du Bois writes the history, it's very much so that you get a sense of the movement <laughs> of things and of people and of the different forces involved in reconstruction, the contest over it, like what would be the fate of America. But the way that the, like Kianga Yamada Taylor, Eric Boner, Cornel West were talking about it, everything was very static. They were like, and it was also false. They were basically saying um, that the squad today is the equivalent of Thaddeus Stevens, of, um, what was the other, the other, um, yeah, Charles Sumner, those people. They're saying the abolitionists of Reconstruction are now the, the squad of 2021, 2022. You know, and so there's no sense of the movement of things. And also, at the very beginning, Eric Foner, his his big take on the essence of Reconstruction is the question of whether Black people could have equal rights with white people. Yeah. But that's not what Du Bois says. Du Bois says the question of Reconstruction is whether the Black proletariat could govern. You know, the question of the dictatorship of the dark proletariat, you know, whether the most exploited class in society could um, transcend that and actually govern, like, and create a new democracy. And yeah, actually, like, yeah, hearing you talk about also Hegel, I think it gave me a further appreciation for how lacking, like, three of the most eminent um, intellect, supposed intellectuals of our time. Um, paired with like the most so-called progressive politician of our time, um, how much thing, just how how lacking all of it is uh, in comparison to um, what someone like Du Bois was putting forward into the mix of how we could understand American history and the possibilities of America, um, and. Yeah, yeah, that was a. Uh, uh, I, I just say something. I, I agree, and I, I'm so grateful you put it the way you did, um, Jerry, because you know the <laughs> they're debating with Du Bois without being honest enough to say we're rejecting this part of Du Bois. We have that's the first thing. The dishonesty is what. Uh, just bothers me so much. The other thing is, remember I was just talking about how um, Hegel, by the end of the 1800s, was more or less buried, and there's only the revolutionaries that reclaimed Hegel and his logic as a instrument of revolutionary analysis. And uh, the same thing with this. It is the further burying of Du Bois and in so doing of Marx and of Hegel. All of, all of the revolutionary possibilities 
in Du Bois's work, which then would take you back to studying Hegel, whether you want to say dialectics through threes, dialectics, however you want to do it, but you're back to a dialectical logic, not a static logic. It, I, I, found, I don't know how you, I found it so like frustrating. Did you feel the same yeah. way? So I'd like you to look at these nine lectures. I mean, I think you have the, you know, internal fortitude to do it. Yeah. I can't stand up. <laughs> Go ahead. Please, please stop down. Uh, yeah, I tried to read uh, Hegel and read Phenomenology uh, of the Spirit with yeah. Lenin's annotations. And I was just impressed, but I couldn't read it because it was too no. dense. <laughs> no, don't worry about that one. That one, uh, can, I, can I just say something in reading this? I think the logic is much more accessible because he's dealing with concrete sciences. He goes through calculus, he goes through physics, he goes through all of these sciences as application to show the presence of the unity of opposites and movement of phenomena. But the phenomenology is a work where he is, it's a almost a polemic with Kant. And it's hard to understand because it's German, it's translation, it's particular to that period in these two thinkers but i, I just went yeah and i was just impressed because uh Lenin, I, there was, I was it's german and then uh Lenin is reading the german and annotating it in russian the wow. german and the russian was translated <laughs> and the notes the annotations were you know something i remember one of them was just like wow Hegel does this it's so brilliant and i didn't understand what it was dialectics and I think Hegel uh, from someone who works with computers has always been interested in systems. Hegel is interesting because it gives a new framework to be able to understand all that and you can see it in you can see Hegel's logic in science in music where you have to return to the beginning of the of the uh, scale mm -hmm. or you can think about you know light it's, you, know, you, you have to think of contradictions to understand quantum uh, mechanics. I think absolutely right about that. Except in quantum mechanics, you're dealing with at least from what is said, uncertainty, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, that, that's going to be something we really have to consider. Now, I have some writings on uh, on uh, dialectics and mathematics, calculus in particular. Uh, but I still think that this is an emerging science. Uh, you know, one, one of the things I know, um, Nori and I talked from coming in here that we, in spite of your explanation, we have to say some here. Don't nobody understand what blockchain <laughs> is, and you have not helped us. <laughs> 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 you gotta get your credit cards together. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Nori, 
because you know we trying to Bitcoin, blockchain, the dollar's going down, Bitcoin coming up. Okay. I mean, we don't we can't figure this out. Now. But you don't have to explain it now. Maybe you do a master class. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in fact, to understand these phenomena isolated and as things in themselves obscures them rather than clarifies them. If we understand them in their relationships to multiple phenomena and processes, they become more understandable. Have you ever had a calculus teacher? Yeah. Many of them. Yeah. Have you ever had a good calculus teacher? <laughs> no. No, no calculus teacher is good. There is not a good calculus teacher because the calculus teacher is taught how to do calculus problems, not how to understand what Hegel calls the calculus. If you want to show me how to solve, do problems, you're not telling me what this is. And it is this that is the problem. Like you take economic analysis. You know, the economy is all screwed up. Everybody knows this. Inflation is, I think, out of control. People realize this. The question is, what is inflation? You know what I'm saying? Now, we can talk about wage inflation, price inflation, or we could talk about inflation as an economic process within, I mean, you, you know what I'm saying? Look, I'll just, there has not been a great economist since John Maynard Keynes. John Maynard Keynes was a great intellectual and a, a honest intellectual. And he said, I'm writing a general theory of employment, of money and interest. Three of the most important categories in classical political economy. You understand what I'm saying? You can't interrogate and navigate all of that. But honestly, forthrightly, in clarifying things in order as he said, to establish the basis for new economic policies, albeit under capitalism. Okay, you can work with that. You're helping me to understand, but don't get me in no quote, microeconomics class, you know, where all we're gonna do is supply, her demand her, and this is where they need more money. This is turned, everything becomes a technique, a specialization. There's no general knowledge. You know, to my knowledge, John Maynard Keynes was not trained as an economist. Certainly, Karl Marx was not trained as an economist. You know, uh, Lenin was not a philosopher by training, but it is this broad knowledge that makes it possible 
to address specific problems. Like in, in this culture today, okay, to be considered a smart person, you have to have written at least three books. You know. No one has to read them either. <laughs> no one does read them. So, but see, you know, we call a person that writes a book or writes something an author. From author, we get the word authority. The author of a book is considered an authority. He, he or she has authorship. Now, we could go from authority to authoritarianism or authoritarian. So, but we do have that. The authoritarian rule of people who write books. This is the greatest scam of all time. This is the greatest scam of all time. And the authors and readers of books are not as intelligent as people before all of this book reading and book writing, which is to say that academics are among the dumbest people and they are. You take them out of narrow specialties, they're not worth a dollar. Very and, and you, I mean, you've been, you guys have gone to universities and been around these kind of people. You know, an intellectual is filled with light. When, a, when that light goes out, there's no longer an intellectual there. When it was that there's not that excitement about the world, about humanity, you're not dealing with an intellectual. You're dealing with a dunce who knows this much. And then that person takes that much and exaggerates it and makes it so complicated that only I know what this is. There's one of the great uh, frauds ever perpetrated. And that's why in everything, if you can't explain it, you don't know it. If you can't give a cogent explanation, you do not know it. What would you do? What you're saying reminds me of, um, I think one of the courses where I did encounter any philosophy, so to speak, was um, like a course on literary theory, and it was really, first it was after, I think. Okay. yeah, but I mean, it was also depressing, but um, <laughs> they were, I mean, the, but it was really deep into post-structure, um, people like Derrida, like the deconstructionists, stuff like that, which I guess after hearing you speak, it sounds like a reaction to Kant without wanting to go to Hegel or something like that. This is very, uh, but I consider the deconstructionists to be neo-Kantian. Can you break down what you're saying? Oh, just, just chill. Just sit down. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Well, basically, like, when I was taking, like, this course on literary theory. See, see the thing is, when he's saying literary theory, so you could take a course and become an expert, not in a particular author, but how to read. 
So you have a theory of reading. Just like you say, all of us, we know how to read. But see, the deconstructionists would say, but you really don't know how to get the meaning out of what you read. You know what I'm saying? So therefore, you know, I got to come crawling to you. Good, I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, because their, their whole thing is you, like the whole, everything becomes just language. Well, and that's also, I think, how we ended up where we are now, where everything is about language, like cancel culture, everything. And, um, very, very the other, but the most fascinating, most fascinating part of that whole course that I took was I forget who they, who we were reading, um, but basically, like the professor was saying, I'm not here to. You think I'm here as a professor to teach you things and to impart knowledge to you, but actually, I'm here to trick you. It was like, like they, they literally uh, said, man, I'm paying you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was basically that, that was That was reason for justifiable homicide. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. You just robbed me of all this. Go ahead, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, but I mean, it was, I mean, I was, I was pretty stunned at the time. But, um, yeah. I, I would be, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. <laughs> Like it, it, but it, it, in a way, it, it, ex, it does explain like why, at least in part, it, it helped explain like clear clarify for me like like why why things are so bad basically. Oh, really? Yeah. This, but this is very interesting that he thought he was being cute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be like funny, like yeah, ironic. Yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, and uh, provocative. Right. But uh, go go ahead. So, let me just say this. But see, that is. But then on one, he was being ironic. But on the other side, there was some truth to it, because what he was saying is, I can't really tell you anything about the world you live in, but I can. Uh, I can be sarcastic, satirical. I can be a joke, a clown, a signifying monkey, if you will. You know, I can be all of that, but don't ask me to help you understand the world. You're not paying me enough, and I don't know enough, but anyway, go ahead. Uh, so I did an internship uh, in a science lab in Oxford, and uh, they were in England? In England. You was over there? Yeah, a long time ago, uh, when I was 17. But it was, yeah. uh, it was, um, they were complaining about how uh, the banking students got uh, more money from the institution, but I was just happy to be there. So, uh, but they were saying that this other uh, professor, he was a, a biologist and a chemist, and they were complaining that he would go to chemists and speak biology, and he'd go to the biologists and speak chemistry, just so that they no one could understand what he was saying, and everyone would think he was a big deal. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, this is to other scientists who do this. Um, uh, you know, earlier this summer, I went to uh, the British Museum, and you can tell from you know going to that exhibit that they're obsessed with collecting and categorizing, and it's still there. 
And they even have <coughs> this is after Black Lives Matter. They had a, uh, a little thing about like, oh yeah, you know, a lot of this stuff in this museum it was wrong that we did this. So we're going to continue, you know, this work of archiving and categorizing. Yeah, um, you know, with this thing about things being in motion, you can't put labels and categories on these things. But the deconstructionists and postmodernists, they take it too far. Uh, they take it so far that you can't use labels to help you guide you at all. Yeah. Yeah, this, is, this is a very interesting thing that you say. But maybe somebody else wants to. The whole idea, see this, um, this is the deconstructionist term uh, that, well, I, don't, I don't know how to say it, but um, see this, this problem of naming and renaming as a way of establishing meaning. But it's, it, it's, I mean, I, I don't know what to say right now. I don't have the language right now because I'm, I'm, I feel a little bit emotional about it. I mean, angry and emotional. Mm -hmm. uh, because it is so all-pervasive. It is so commensurate uh, to the crisis of the ruling class. You know, uh, just like, uh, you know, I can call you a fascist, you know, without any definition of what fascism is historically, uh, contemporaneously, you know, I can call you whatever, I name you, the naming is more important. There is no truth, it's just naming. And that's why I can cancel you based upon how I name you. They're obsessed with the aesthetic with no connection to the essence. So yeah. they're concerned. They think the, the thing in itself is found in the meaning of the text and what is not in the material world. So they become yeah. obsessed. And, with and see, it's the, the elevation of form over substance and of the subject over objectivity that it is wrong. And it is an, it is an assault upon the enlightenment itself but really the revolutionary wing of the Enlightenment. That's why they can so easily dismiss a, um, a Du Bois. For instance, if I could give you an example, if you don't mind, um, you, take, uh, you take Gerald Horne. Gerald Horne is one of the most prolific authors you can ever meet. I don't know how he does it. I don't know why he does it. You know what I'm saying? I really, it, it don't make no sense to me. Yeah, I don't know why. Uh, you know, Gerald, I don't need you to write another book on jazz. You know, that's not you. <laughs> you can do it, but I'm, but so the question becomes, especially with his work on the counter-revolution of 1776, it's a ludicrous thesis. It's a anti-dialectical thesis, you know? Uh, it is a method of doing history where the fact, quote, the facts 
speak for themselves type of thing. And the question, this is a question in philosophy of science uh, on both sides, progressive and reactionary sides of it. Well, what are facts and do facts alone explain reality? Yeah, if you understand, and it's, it's just, it's, and so you get sucked into something. So he could say, on the basis of my thesis, uh, I support the settler colonial thesis and the 1619 project. And in fact, I'll go further and I'll say that the uh, liberal wing of the imperialist ruling class are far more progressive than the white working class. And if Black people have to choose, let us choose Microsoft, uh, 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 Facebook, uh, and Goldman Sachs. And they're all woke. You see what I'm saying? It leads to, uh, I, I would say, political absurdity. But I have the facts. I'm basing my conclusions on the facts. And for anyone to say that, I don't care, you could write a thousand books. For anyone to talk like that shows a very poor understanding of philosophy of science and theories of knowledge. It is almost infantile to argue that. explain some of it yeah um, poor education <laughs> yeah very very poor and the belief that revolution is a matter of my will the will to power the will to change you know and so uh once my quote will is broken or i become depressed and there's nothing left does that make sense yeah i can explain let me put it another way because I know you all must ask the question, where are all the old school revolutionaries? I asked the same question, you know, because I, you know, I was with all the old, quote, old school revolutionaries. And they weren't that revolutionary in the old school. I would say that unequivocally, because whether they understood it or not, they believed that the revolutionary process was driven by the will and courage of revolutionaries. Nothing could be more wrong. So when, quote, their will is broken, 
and it ultimately would be broken, because I don't care how courageous you are, you keep running up against a ruling class. As an individual, they take you down with the quickness, lock you up for any number of years, and you never heard, again, heard of again. What is left? Very little. But what did you start with? Very little. Very little. The only way you sustain a revolutionary practice is with the constant development of revolutionary understanding of the world in which you live. I could name names of and, and you know, but I don't want to do this right now. I can tell you, and it's it's uh, it's bad for young people because they think that because a person is locked up, that makes them a revolutionary. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. You know, the ruling class will lock you up for nothing. So if you want to be locked up, you can get locked up. Now, being, you know, you think that being locked up will make you live in history and memory as a great freedom fighter? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. And, you know, you know from your own experience, Samir, you were taken in by that. You know, running around here talking trash. You know, because you thought that you know, uh, Antifa, all that y'all gonna run around and, you know, spray paint. No, man, it ain't gonna sustain nothing. And that's why you see such a turnover of so-called activists. How many of the people that you knew as activists three or four years ago are still activists? Yeah, because I asked you, I said, where's so-and-so? I don't know where they're at, you know? Last time I heard it was in the rehab, you know, all that kind of thing. No, that ain't the way it's done. And that's why Henry Winston is such an icon in Walmart. And that's why he's not known. An icon like that. You know, he just said, what, if he didn't say anything else, we drink from the fountain of knowledge no matter where it is. Isn't that such an illuminating thing for a young person to hear? That all of my life I can learn and I can study and I can put into practice ideas. That's what we want to teach young people. That's the opposite. See, because often behind a lot of recklessness, is really a coward trying to prove something to themselves. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes you get a person talking, you know, talk about a big woolly talk. After police, down, hey, all that shit. You say, well, hey, dog, you saying that to me? Where you at now? I ain't seen you. Because there's nothing there. They're trying to prove something to themselves. A frightened little child trying to be a
It doesn't last. It doesn't. None of us come into this world as revolutionaries. None of us. None of us. And none of us can sustain that without other people. Without other people. And without constant, that's why we have a free school. People come and go. That's on them. You understand? But to be a revolutionary, committed to know the That's a deep commitment. And teaching what you know to other people. Going out among the people. Church of the Crucifixion, Laotian immigrants. They want to do a birthday party for W.E.B. Du Bois. That's what we're talking about. Go to the Muslim mosque. That's revolutionary activity. I'm telling you. You know, I've been around long enough. I'm just not making this up. You know, you see it all. And I'm just, this is just a cautionary note. Don't be taken in by a lot of bullshit, a lot of performance, a lot of talk. Y'all don't have to do that. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I'll start from the beginning. Nandita says, I'm really excited about our reading Hegel together. I hope that in reading him, we can understand better the engagement of revolutionaries with German philosophy. I'm thinking especially of Huey Newton, Gracie Boggs, and Tate, not only with Hegel, but also with Kant, Nietzsche, and others. I agree that so many of us have been cheated out of an education that deals with the classics and the fundamental human questions that we try to address. I also feel a lot of us, like many others, suffer from a kind of underconfidence because of this. A kind of underconfidence because of? Because of the lack of an education in the classics. A lack of an ed effective education. Yep. I'm looking forward to uncovering this body of knowledge together. Um, Jahan says, the point that Doc makes about assumptions is crucial. It is clear that all of the speakers at Bernie's Reconstruction event were operating off of shared assumptions. Yeah. This applies to so-called progressive and radical and progressive academics as well as activists. This is because ideological education and struggle is highly underemphasized. This initiative to study Hegel's foundations will allow us to challenge the assumptions forced on us by the ruling class. And then Danny Wayne Eisenberg Jacobs has a series. So it was a Danny. Danny. Yeah, Danny. Long, long questions, but I'll get to them. I'll end with them because um, there's a lot of points made. Nabila says. Um, Nabila says, please ask my question to Doc. Why is it so important to study these horrible-looking Europeans? Who's Nabila? said that. <laughs> Although I have heard good discussions with German Olami Yasekela, socialist, explaining dialectics, etc. That was it. That was Nabila. And also, because Nabila missed, I think Nabila missed, Nabila said I was at the car repair shop and missed the beginning. So I think Nabila was at the car repair shop. 
So she was the, the beginning of that one? Car repair shop. Car repair shop. Like oh, she, car repair shop. So she missed some of the beginning when I think we addressed some of that, but she want, did want us to ask you why it's so important to study your with Europeans. Um, and then lastly, she says, if Doc hasn't addressed Sydney Poitier, can he take a few minutes? Sydney Poitier. And then, do you want me to read Daniel's email comments now? Or uh, uh, maybe not read the whole thing. We'll come, we'll come back to it. Yeah. But he's quoting someone? Um, he's sharing his thoughts on dialectics and neo-Kantian and Rousseau and, and then connecting it to Marx and capitalism and Engels. I just read it. How long is it? It's long, but let's speak up. I wanted to ask related to this. I wanted to ask you let me speak. What did she say? Speak about because you know there's a echo. Oh, I wanted to ask a related question, which is if you could speak a little bit of how the comments on Jacob's The context in which you first started Jacob's. <laughs> Just a little if you want. Did you say I was your game? I hear so fucking funny. There is an echo. There is an echo. There's an echo. Yeah. Why study Europeans? I guess. I mean, uh, I guess we're interested in science, we're interested in ideas, we're interested in a nebula, Henry Winston's idea that we drink from the fountain of knowledge, no matter where it is, and no matter what a person looks like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, you know, uh, Marcus Garvey had the saying, uh, Africa for the Africans, Europe for the Europeans, and Asia for the Asiatics. So, uh, but that, but he also said that the British are, are best able to rule Africa, and I am best able to serve them. What? So where do we end up? I mean, we want to study everything. And uh, Hegel is a great philosopher. He really is, I hate to hit, even though he's not such a nice looking guy. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, yeah, that's why Nabila. Uh, and I, 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 Tananda, uh, you and congratulations. 
I'm wanting to call them. I just I know they're hunting. I guess they're hunting with me. But <laughs> um, but you know we're following a long line of intellectuals and radicals and evolutionaries who study philosophy. Uh, and as we enter this most crucial period in the history of the United States, and in a lot of ways, the history of the world, uh, we need to be as equipped as possible. Now I say to Nabila, I mean, the study of, of Hegel is just part of what the free school will be doing in the first half of this year, because I kind of laid out a number of other things, including Vietnam and Korea and the civil rights movement, and hopefully a conference on John Coltrane and Sun Ra. But yeah, is there some, are there others? Yeah, I think Serafina is commenting too. Um, she says, Who's this? Serafina. In Du Bois' soliloquy, so his third autobiography, he writes towards the indictment to the Peace Information Center, who was getting put to trial about being a foreign agent, and replied in a release to the public that, quote, defendants deny that peace is a foreign idea but they gladly admit that they gathered and publicized ideas and means of action for peace from everywhere they could obtain them. They assert that any attempt to curtail such free interchange of thought, opinion, and knowledge of fact the world over is clearly an interference with the constitutional right of the American citizens. The function of this center was to give to the citizens of third country, of this country, those facts concerning the something efforts for peace, which the American press for the most part is suppressing. The United States has yet laid no embargo on the importation of ideas or knowledge of international efforts for social uplift. And surely there can be today no greater need for information than in the peace movement and the effort to remove the horrible threat of a third world war. What's important to me about the What's important to me about this quote is to free the mind, to be free in thinking, which is to be anchored in struggle. I feel like that reminds me of the Winston quote we've been talking about, to drink from the fountain of knowledge. Um, and I also really liked Jahan's point about assumptions. Like I said, assumptions, that philosophy, I feel like that's, now, I think that's what Jeremiah was also saying about literary theory and everything your formal education teaches you today. Nothing is teaching, giving you the actual tools of knowledge to even be able to know what assumptions you have been trained in in society. And I feel like what the free school does, even by going to the basics of philosophy, is to free your mind, to actually have the tools to think, to like even be able to analyze what assumptions like we've been trained in by the ruling elite or by progressive so-called progressive scholars. Mm -hmm. um, and okay, and then Serafina also adds, I think studying Hegel is to develop knowing the truth. And studying philosophy in the free school would be to develop how we know the ideas that are true and stand for the people in this time. 
philosophy is important in developing how to think for, in our case, for peace and struggle. Grady, Grady Light says, logic and dialectics are good starting points for the 10th anniversary of Saturday Blues. Logic is how and why things make sense so that we can understand what they are. Dialectic, dialectics say what things are, that is, that they contain what they once were, that they contain what they will become, that this outcome retains the past. Dialectics say how and why all that makes sense is not a contradiction. The last several weeks have been looking at what the Saturday Free School is, has been, and will be. In other words, we've been making sense of the last nine years examining our goals, why we chose them, and how they were achieved. That is, we reviewed and evaluated how the Saturday Free School works. That is to say, we've been discussing the logic of free school. <laughs> um, and then I'll try to, I'll, I'll read out what Danny commented. Um, Danny Lee Eisenberg. Danny Jacobs. Okay. Um, he says, dialectic and in antiquity meant right thinking, meant exposing the unreflected thinking. Socratic dialectic, it was limited to upper castes. Hegel himself says the modern dialectic begins with Rousseau, the history of philosophy. Adam Smith is the first English translator of Rousseau. Kant said Rousseau taught him to love and respect mankind. He had one picture in his home of Rousseau. Why Rousseau? Rousseau articulated that the modern dialectic was the dialectic of modern society. It was no longer about right thinking, but the transformation of humanity. Mm -hmm. Society became the realm of freedom, of the negation or transformation of nature, of instinct, unconscious, etc. Identity gets defined as identity through difference because society is a concrete unity. We share something common across our difference, but that only becomes apparent in a modern society based on such comparisons. Labor. I would say Hegel had a problem with neo-Kantianism, not Kant. What he said was the revolution quote, lodged in thought. Philosophy was one part of the revolution, along with politics and political economy. Um, and then talks about how neo-Kantianism is justified mysticism in the existing order today. Um, Uh, he says Hegel wanted to show that there was a point to logic, that there is a purpose to him. Um, and then he's connecting it to Lenin and says this is exactly what Lenin states at the end of his notebook on Hegel. Okay, sorry, I'm trying to connect. Yeah, I think I think Danny has done a lot of research on Hegel and maybe Dr. Kinsey has comments on your own. Well, I was just saying his comments are very long, but yeah, um, maybe like. But this thing about yeah, and um, it's something that I was unaware of, and perhaps when Danny comes, you can help us, yeah. you know, in understanding some of that. Uh, but I, I, I just one thing I that I heard him say that I do disagree with. Hegel didn't like comments. Mm -hmm. He really didn't. And when you read the. Uh, Certainly, in the uh, science of logic, he excoriates him, and I think in the phenomenology of spirit, he did not like Kant. He felt Kant was a sellout, literally a sellout, 
Uh, so I'll just say that about you. <laughs> Y'all, maybe we should uh, back <laughs> up. <laughs> Unless there are other people who are maybe. So we'll listen. So, so for next week, uh, could we make available to everybody a PDF of the Science of Logic? And everybody, if you want your own book copy, you could order it on uh, Amazon for a really inexpensive price, maybe a couple of dollars if you can get a used one. And um, what was the other thing? So for next week, we'll read the two prefaces, the first and second prefaces to the science of logic. Is that fair enough? And then we're going to read aloud. Then we're going to read aloud. Okay, folks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.